Our text is Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. I really don't know if I'm going to make it through everything. And um, we'll see. I'll let the Lord, the Lord lead as, as He will. As you're turning there, I want to tell you the story of John Bunyan. Many of you are familiar with his life. Um, born in 1628 in England. Became a believer in Christ in his early 20s. He joined up with a nonconformist. Became a preacher of the Gospel and... Soon after writing some books and preaching, he gained some notoriety. And with notoriety comes close scrutiny by the government officials. At that time, it was illegal to preach in public gatherings without a license. And of course, John Bunyan, being a nonconformist, didn't have a license. That was the, the premise of the nonconformists. They didn't want to conform to the Church of England. They didn't want to go through their schools and their regimentation and preach only in their churches. They wanted a freedom and uh, as more and more people were coming to hear him, he drew quite a bit of attention. As a 30-year-old, he was arrested for preaching the first time. He was quickly released. And a few years later, he was arrested for preaching and in prison. And Mr. Justice Wingate, to whom John Bunyan stood before, was inclined to release him, seeing no real grounds to uh, imprison him. But when John Bunyan said, if you release me today, I will preach tomorrow, the judge felt he had no choice but to imprison him. And for the next 12 years, he spent in prison. With the exception, though, he had about three weeks he was released from prison after about six years or so, but was immediately rearrested after he preached the Gospel. Finally, in 1672, King Charles II issued the Declaration of Religious Indulgence. He was released, soon became a pastor of St. John's Church of Bedford, which had influenced him with some women who shared the gospel with him initially. And he was, he went there, received a license to preach somehow through this edict of Charles II. His congregation grew quickly. He was preaching to crowds. Many people were coming, even from London, as far as 60 miles away. They were coming to hear him preach. But three years later, Charles withdrew the Declaration of Religious Indulgence and John Bunyan spent another six months in jail for preaching the Gospel. And it's there, it's second imprisonment over six months that he wrote his most famous work, Pilgrim's Progress. And things were difficult for Bunyan in jail. Though he had some freedom, had visitors, and had some freedom to write, what was most difficult for him was the mental anguish. His first wife had borne him four children, one of whom was blind. And she died. And Bunyan remarried a woman named Elizabeth. And a year after marriage, then John was in prison then for his 12-year stint. And Elizabeth, on her own, cared for these four children. He was in prison. and he, Bunyan could have been released at any moment. He would have just said to the officials, I will preach no more. And he could have walked free. But he felt the call of God in his life was to preach. And even if it meant great suffering. And listen to his anguish. He said, the parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that, not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies of marriage and having children, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships and miseries and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship. I thought my blind one might go under, would break my heart to pieces. It was a struggle for him. 
And yet He remained true to Christ. We must obey God rather than men. Even if things look so horrible and so difficult. And we might easily say, as we look at Bunyan's life, what a, what a wasted life it was. He was a dozen years rotting away in, in prison. Think about the large crowds that he was drawing. Think about the good that he could have done to them. We might also say he put his wife and children through all this needless suffering. But God had another plan. Bunyan, with time to think, was unbelievably imaginative. He was a great writer and he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote other things which Bunyan's works are worthy of being read. They're some of the most wonderful, engaging, encouraging works. Some of the poems that he's written are very good. But he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And next to the Bible, it's been said that this is the, the most highly read book in all the world. It's been translated into 200 different languages and has been a blessing to people all around the globe for hundreds of years. He blessed more people with his writing than he was ever able to influence with his life. And, and, and may it just be, I'll just throw this little tidbit in there, may it just be that his imprisonment and his stand for Christ was the very thing that God used to allow such a great audience. It's one thing for a man to stand and preach. It's another thing for someone who has been in prison for 12 years to come back and preach and tell of his trials and how he found Christ faithful. When you step back from Bunyan's life, you get a, a greater perspective of his life. And so it is the Apostle Paul. He too was in prison for preaching the Gospel. Yet if you'd step back for a moment, gain perspective of Paul's life, you realize what a blessing his imprisonment was to the church for 2,000 years like Bunyan, Paul did some writing in prison. In fact, he wrote four letters in prison. They're called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're called the prison epistles because he wrote them in prison. And these letters we have in our Bible, they've been translated into many, many languages and have been read by untold billions of people to eternal blessing. It's the Apostle Paul in prison. God gave him some time to write. It was inspired words. But it wasn't just his writing that caused imprisonment to be used of the, of the Lord doing great things long after his death. No, Paul was able, in the midst of his imprisonment, to have a perspective that God was using his imprisonment during his imprisonment for the good. Let's look at our text this morning, beginning at verse 10, 12. Paul's going to explain the good that has come from his imprisonment. He says this, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the Gospel. The former proclaims Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking, me to cause, thinking to cause me to stress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice." The good that's come from his imprisonment is simply this. The Gospel's advanced. The Gospel has progressed precisely because he was in prison. 
One might easily think that Paul's imprisonment was a bad thing. On the contrary, Paul's right. It is actually served to advance the Gospel, perhaps in a greater way than if he had not been in prison. Paul begins in verse 12. He says, Now, I want you to know, brethren, he wanted the Philippians to really grasp this. Because perhaps there are some who, who saw Paul in prison and um, were lamenting the fact that, that he was in prison. And I would suspect that there were, there were those who thought far better that Paul would be out planting churches and preaching and evangelizing the lost rather than him being in prison. But he says, no, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. And I'm sure that there are many who had the perspective of Agabus. you remember him? Shortly before Paul came to Jerusalem, he was in Caesarea. And Paul encountered Agabus there before he went up to Jerusalem. And we read in Acts 21, verse 11, how Agabus took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. So you imagine me taking my belt off and sitting down and and binding my own feet and hands, so I got nowhere to go. And he says, "This is what the Holy Spirit prophesied is going to happen to you, Paul, in Jerusalem. You are going to be arrested. You are going to be bound." And Luke writes, he was right there with them. When we all heard this, we as well, the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul's perspective was different. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Luke said, since he couldn't be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. So off he went to Jerusalem, was quickly arrested in the temple for his own safety. He was transferred to Caesarea where he served several years in prison, eventually appealing to Caesar. So he's transferred to Rome where he's to stand before Caesar in another two years, being under house arrest in Rome. Contrary to what we might think, that actually turned out as a good thing for the advance of the Gospel. My message this morning is entitled The Progress of the Gospel. And I call it The Advance of the Gospel. Far from being a hindrance, to the Gospel, Paul's imprisonment served to advance it. And I just say this, how often it is with God's work that what what we see as bad actually is a good thing. Remember when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers? An awful deed. To sell your brother into slavery thinking he's going to spend the rest of his life in hard labor. But decades later, Joseph was able to tell his brothers, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That thing that we might deem bad, God deems good. Remember the plagues that God performed in the Egyptians? They were dreadful. But God said to Pharaoh, For this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you My power and in order to proclaim My name throughout the earth. In other words, the awful plagues that came upon the Egyptians only served for the greater glory of God as He was able to show what great power He has in these miracles. Or the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep Your Word. And the affliction came upon him. You might see that's a bad thing, but the affliction was the very thing that drove him to keep the Word. To keep greater obedience to the Lord. That's why James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into and encounter various trials. 
Why? Because these trials produce endurance. And endurance produces a perfect result. You might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the trials may be painful and difficult, but they lead to something better, James says. They lead to a trust in the Lord. God's ways are not our ways. He will use difficult things for His greater glory and for our greater good. You may be here this morning and facing some health difficulties. You may be facing some financial difficulties. You may be facing some relational difficulties, say with your children or maybe with your boss or your neighbors. You may be experiencing hardships because of your sin or maybe because of circumstances in your life. Just know the promise of Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a lover of God, if you're one of His chosen ones, know that God is working all things in your life for His good. Even if they appear bad in the moment. And for Paul, that was the case. He was, he was under arrest. He was in prison. He had no freedom. And yet, God was using his circumstances for good. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Well, let's look at my first point. It comes in verse 13. Verse 12 really gives the, the summary of what the passage is about. And then verse 13 starts to flush it out how his imprisonment has been for the greater progress of the gospel. First of all, the gospel has advanced in prison. That is right there among prisoners. We see this in verse 13, right? So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Now, we think imprisonment, we can think of deep, dark prison cells. Rome had plenty of those at the time, but this is, this is not one of those prisons. Paul's under house arrest. He was in rented quarters, Acts 28, verse 30 says. And from the end of the book of Acts, we read, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. There was a picture that, and the soldier who was guarding him was from the Imperial Guard. The New American Standard translates it Praetorian Guard. ESV translates it the Imperial Guard. The NIV translates it the Palace Guard. That, that gives you an idea. These are the, the guards around the palace who, who protected the palace. They, they would be a bit like our Secret Service agents who guard the President. To guard dignitaries in the fact that they were stationed in Rome to guard the emperor. And yet, more than mere guards, these were also like elite soldiers. These, these might be a little bit like our Navy SEALs, adept at taking various military assignments. Kind of gives you a flavor of this elite guard group of people. And when it came to Paul, he had a guard chained to him at all times. When the guard's watch was over, when he was sleepy, he had to go take a respite. Another guard would come and take his place. The one guard would unshackle his chains, whether it was on his wrist or on his feet, we don't know. And the other guard would chain right to Paul so that Paul would not get away. In fact, that's why Paul doesn't literally say that he is in prison. Rather, he calls his captivity bonds. If you've got a New American Standard there in verse 13, he says, so that my bonds in Christ my bonds in the cause of Christ, or, or perhaps even better, chains. That's how the New King James translates it. So they become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now from the point of view of the guards, Paul was chained to them. But in Paul's view, the guards were chained to him. In other words, Paul had a captive audience every 8 to 12 hours, however long the shift happened. And what do you think came from his lips? preaching forth the Gospel. And, and if it wasn't just with the palace guard, perhaps it was with others. Keep your fingers here at Philippians and turn over to the end of Acts. 
Acts chapter 28. I want to read kind of a lengthy section here to give you an idea of what Paul was doing in prison and what was happening to him. And I want you to think about this, that this whole time this is happening, he's got a Roman guard tied right to him. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 28. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Now, when we entered Rome, Paul and Luke says we because Luke was right there with him at this time. We entered Rome. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And after three days, right after coming into Rome, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I have any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain, he said, for the sake of the hope of Israel. And on the other end of that chain is a Roman guard. And then they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it's spoken against everywhere. In other words, you've got this accusation, and Paul came, and there were these letters, but they haven't arrived yet. So Paul has the advantage of coming before the accusations come. And so he has a chance to speak with them. In verse 23, When they set a day for Paul... They came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And again, I remind you that as he's doing this, he's got a Roman guard sitting right there while he's explaining morning to evening. And I'm sure he's just opening the Bible and just telling them the Old Testament, what they had at that time showing the prophecies and how they, they came true and, and showing the law of Moses, how you can't keep the law by yourself and showing how cursed is everyone who sits on a tree and hangs on a tree and how Jesus is the Redeemer from Genesis 3.15 promised to Adam and Eve. He spoke this all day. In verse 24, we see the mixed response that we always see in the book of Acts. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Here's his parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Basically, he condemns it. I'm telling you these things, but exactly what Isaiah prophesied about going out with the truth going out, but it's falling upon deaf ears. Therefore, verse 28, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Again, Jews first, then to the Greeks. Missionary methodology of the early apostles. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. Not only would the guard have heard these days or day of testimony about digging into the law of Moses, but 
and the prophets morning till evening, but he was there two full years and could receive people. And, and I'm sure this, this guard was sitting right there. And it's even the content here. He was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness. What's he going to preach about when he's talking about the kingdom of God? He's going to talk about the king who comes. Jesus, the one born of the line of David in Bethlehem, according to Micah's prophecy. He was the prophet who was mighty in word and deed in the sight of God and all the people. He was the Messiah. He was the king to come to establish his kingdom. And yet Jesus was crucified as a common criminal. Pilate saw him innocent. He was blameless. But though he was blameless, he took our blame. And we need to believe in him and our sins are wiped away. It's just a, a little bit of what he was preaching about, about the kingdom. And Jesus is coming back someday to fully establish his kingdom. We need to look up to King Jesus. And after many days of such talk, after years of such talk, Paul could rightly say, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Those who chained to him heard his message. But verse 6, 13 seems to indicate that everyone in the whole guard heard his story. Now, we don't know how many were in the guard. I think when Augustus established the Praetorian Guard, it was somewhere in the area of 40,000. And, and so you've got thousands of, of guard members. And Paul says basically every single one of them know. It's probably just, hey, it's been, been known just beyond these. And you say, how can that be? It's not that every single one of these guards guarded Paul, but I think it's that these people, the guards, came back and started talking about this prisoner, about what they had. And, and things, things were talking and things were spilling around. And Just think about this. Paul was telling these guards, these guards were spreading the gospel for him. If they believed, they were spreading the gospel out of belief. If they didn't believe, at least they were stirring interest and maybe even presenting the gospel accurately. <laughs> Can you believe this Jewish guy here in prison? And he says you merely need to believe in the Messiah and your, your sins are wiped away. Can you believe that? I mean, it, it could even come from from someone who's not a believer, it's the, the gospel is spread even while Paul is in prison. In fact, we do know that a bunch believe. Turn over back again to Philippians. At the very end of Philippians, chapter 4, Paul sends his greetings. He says this, greet, verse 21, Philippians 4, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. So he, he's got these brethren. He's got the church there in Rome. He was very involved in the church there, you can read the book of Romans. Acts, Romans chapter 16 speaks all these names of all these people he knows. These brethren greet you and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul was under arrest. He couldn't get to Caesar's household. But through the guards who were able to come and speak with them, they went and told the Gospel to the, those in Caesar's household and many of them believed. But it wasn't only the guards who heard, nor was it Caesar's household. Paul even mentions how it's even bigger than that. He just lumps everything in here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 13. The Gospel has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So you say, well, who's he talking about? I think he's just talking about Rome and even maybe abroad. I mean, think about um, John Bunyan. When he was in prison, his, his imprisonment got just beyond London. Maybe it got reached to London, but maybe even beyond Bedford where he was in prison. And Paul, even when he's in Rome, it could have gotten beyond even that. Remember, we spoke with him, right? Acts 20, verse 24. Some were persuaded by the things he spoke about. These were the Jews who were persuaded. And I'm sure if they're persuaded, then they're going to be talking to others. 
And I think even the Jews, remember at the end of Acts 28, how, how they left kind of with this dispute? I think what could have happened with the Jews, the same thing that happened with the Roman guards. Is it those who believe, of course, spread the message, but those who didn't believe could have said, yeah, there's this man from the religious sect called Christian. Right? These are disciples of Jesus. And, and can you believe the audacity of what he says? He's speaking against the law of Moses. He's speaking against the temple. He says we don't need sacrifices anymore because we have Jesus. And that we just need to believe in the Messiah we're come. But the Messiah, the Messiah didn't come. He says that Jesus was the Messiah, but surely he wasn't the Messiah. And you can even see how a, an unbelieving Jew could even spread the gospel message for him as well. Because I know that conversation continued between these Jews who believed and these Jews who didn't believe. And there's debates in the church and the synagogues going on in the public places. And news of the gospel would have certainly spread. And Paul said his message was spreading all throughout Rome, even while he was in prison. And I just say this, what on the one hand looked like an obvious impediment was actually the, the means to spreading the gospel to many. Certainly there was a, a buzz in Rome about this Jewish prisoner. There's buzz all around. And as all people were talking about the gospel in Rome, that's why he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. That's how God works. This is the advance of the Gospel. And I think an obvious application for us is really this. We're not hindered by house arrest. We can move freely about. We have complete freedom of, of speech. We can tell others of Jesus without fear of our lives. So how's it going? This one man in prison sent the Gospel message to the whole Praetorian Guard the whole police force, if you will, and even spread it through the city. What are you talking about? How's your testimony? What about people who come into your house? Do they get annoyed at your God talk, maybe? We've had folks in our house who left and the testimony came back to us. That we're always talking about God. They thought it's a bad thing. They just wanted us to be Friends with them without God. What about your workplace? Some of you men are imprisoned at work. Okay, you're not bound in shackles, but you're there at work. 40, 50 hours, 60 hours a week. Do others go forth from your presence just catching the aroma of Christ or hearing something about Jesus? Does the Gospel become well known throughout your whole company? Students in class, has the gospel gone out? What about your neighborhood? Do the neighbors know what you believe? You can go to your neighbors. Paul had the neighbors have to come to him. How is it that Paul in prison was able to spread the gospel throughout all of Rome, and yet we who walk about freely can speak so little of Christ? Well, I, I think there's some things that are hurting us. Okay, that Paul has an advantage. Paul's imprisonment, as strange as it sounds, was actually a key. Because it caused some, some difficulty, some hardship that drew attention to himself. Just like John Bunyan had. Just like, say, Johnny Erickson Tata. If Johnny Erickson Tata had not been crippled, disabled, become a paraplegic, quadriplegic by that diving accident, she never would have had the, the worldwide platform that she has today. Right? And, and it may just be that sickness is the reason. Someone on their deathbed might be able to spread a message farther than we who are healthy because attention has got there. 
maybe providentially his imprisonment. And, and I think also there's another unique situation that gospel is coming to Rome for the first time. We here in America, we're saturated with the gospel or Christian talk. So when you talk to somebody about it, it's not something new. They, they've heard about it. They've seen it. They've got churches. And so we've got several things working against us. So don't feel guilty at all that you're not making Paul's impact. But know that Paul was making a huge impact even while in prison. And we ought also to seek to make a similar impact. Well, let's move on. Paul says the gospel is advanced not only in prison, but secondly, out of prison. So it's not just the praetorian guard in this, but even other people hearing about this have begun to spread the message as well. Verse 14, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Paul's captivity stirred the hearts of God's people outside of the prison more to speak more boldly than ever before. That's how... God's way is with the church, right? When things get hard, leaders of the church are persecuted, the church flourishes. When secular governments seek to suppress the church, they go after the leaders. They imprison them, sentence them to years of hard labor, torture them and kill them. And when believers stand strong and don't back down, what happens? It's their courage in time of trouble. It gets known throughout the other believers and they become more zealous than ever before. That's the... I deal with uh, Sabina Wormbrand. I, I passed this book out a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago. If you haven't got a copy, I still have a few copies left. Just, just read it. It'll be an encouragement to your heart about someone who stayed true in prison. And it'll encourage your heart to, to speak. Tertullian, the early church father, said this way, the blood of the martyrs is seed. By that he was saying that you kill people that's just going to act like their blood as it sits into the ground is going to be like seed which, which brings up a harvest of 30, 60, 100 fold and you're going to create far more troubles for your government than killing somebody will. Case in point is that the Chinese government, beginning in 1949, they, they began to say all foreign missionaries have to get out of China. By 1953, that task was fully accomplished and, and the scuttlebutt around 1953 was, oh, what's going to happen to this young baby church in, in China? What? What's going to happen? All the, all the support has been taken out. What are they going to do? It's estimated the number of Christians in the entire country at that time was about 500,000. Now, that's not very many when you're talking about a country of a billion people. Okay? But it is, it is some. With all those missionaries leaving, what's going to happen to those 500,000 dear people? Well, since then, the Chinese government has been far from friendly with Christians. And yet, here it is, 60 years later, the number of Christians are far more than were there when the Americans were helping or when missionaries were helping. Firm estimates are hard to obtain. I've seen numbers from 40 million to 130 million. We don't know, but tens of millions of Christians are now in China 60 years later. That means for every convert, they bore fruit hundredfold. Fiftyfold. God can do very well without us. God can do very well without Paul. You know, one of the things in the National Football League that they, they always talk about is that just with injuries, it's the next man up. Right? Someone goes down with a knee injury, okay, next man up. And ministry, it's the same way. Nobody's indispensable in God's kingdom. It's next man up. God buries every king. He buries every leader. And He'll do just fine without, without us. 
All that to say, religious persecution has caused the church in China to flourish to record proportions. One man said, although China bans foreign missionaries and sometimes harasses and imprisons Christians, especially in rural areas, Christianity is booming in China. It's always been that way. We don't need to worry about God's plan for His church and His glory. I'm not worried about the future of the church in America. There are many people, many Christians who are all worried about all the things happening in America. I'm not worried in the slightest. Our country admittedly is facing some difficult things. I just think about the debt. and Who knows what's going to deal with the debt. But, but think, worst case scenario means there's a lessening of prosperity in America. Okay, that's just worst case scenario. So do you think that if, if uh, we're not as prosperous in next generation as we are now, that God's church is going to lack any resources? It may mean that we can't send as many missionaries out to foreign lands and they become just like China without the American help. It may mean that our buildings right, just remain a little older or we don't meet in such nice places. Is that going to harm anything? It will not. It, actually, it will just purge the church because those who come because of the nice, you know, uh, accoutrements or whatever will just will leave because that's not good enough for them. But for those who are really, all we need is God and His Word. America will do, God's church in America will do just fine despite financially, however it turns out. Uh, I think also a second crisis in America, the moral crisis. We're facing the same-sex marriage crisis. In, in fact, the government is pressing upon that, uh, is pressing it more and more upon us as the norm. If you don't accept it and support it, you will be in trouble. That which God has declared to be sin has been forced upon every American. And those who speak up are facing real pressures from our society. People are being put out of business because of their stand, their moral stance. Christians are being put out of business for their moral stance. How do you think the church is going to do when, when there's a big dividing line? You say, are you, are you, going, to, are you going to stand up and, and speak against this and, and protest it? Or are you just going to let it go by the wayside? And accept it? How's, how's it going to do? It's just going to purify the church. It's going to be better for the church. I, I am not worried in the least for all the, the sin, whatever, that's coming by our government. His plan, God's plan for the church in America, the gospel will flourish just fine. If God can cause the gospel to flourish outside this prison, where Paul was inside the prison, he can do much more beyond what we can ask or think. Now, all was not pretty outside the prison. Look at verse 14. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, that's an encouraging thing, okay? They're just, they're encouraged, they're emboldened by seeing Paul, but now we get the ugly. Some, to be sure, verse 15, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the Gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So Paul classifies those spreading the Gospel outside of his prison or his home captivity into two categories. Some were preaching from envy and strife and from selfish ambition. Others were preaching Christ from goodwill and and love and pure motives. Right? It's easy to identify the one category. These are the verse 14 category. They've been more bold in to speak the Word of God without fear. These are the ones who, who knew Paul and loved Paul and loved his Gospel. And they were the followers of Christ in every sense of the Word. These are those who preach Christ from goodwill. 
As it says in see verse 16, I think, right? Speak from goodwill. Verse 15. These are the ones who speak from, from goodwill. They, they preach because they had the good of others in mind. They preached because they wanted others to enjoy the benefits of Jesus. They weren't setting their heart on their own interests, Philippians chapter 2. They were interested in others, just like Timothy was. Chapter 2, verse 22-21. These are those who, who spoke the Gospel from love. They, they preached Christ because they loved Jesus and they loved Paul and they wanted nothing more than to see Christ glorified. These are the ones who preached Christ from pure motives. Not the bad motives of verse 17, but the pure motives. They weren't preaching for their own glory. They were preaching for the motive that Christ be glorified. Those are easy to see. It's easy to think about that first category. It's more difficult, more challenging when you come and think about the second category. And yet Paul has this other category of those who are preaching Christ, verse 15, from envy and strife. From envy and rivalry, perhaps. There's a fighting, a dominion there. And from selfish ambition. And the big question is, is who are these people? It's been the, the question I've been wrestling with all, all week long. Is Who are these people? First of all, we notice they were preaching Christ. Twice, Paul says that. Verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife. Verse 17 says the same thing. The former Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So, whatever these people are, we know that they were telling others about Jesus. His life, death, burial, resurrection. Telling them that Jesus is the Messiah come to save people from their sins. Telling how they need to believe in Him. He's got a coming kingdom. So, they were preaching Christ. And in some sense, they had a correct theology. They were not like those of Galatia who preached a false gospel. Not so with these people. They were preaching Christ. Yes, they were doing with bad motives. Their envy and strife and selfish ambition. So what does that mean? Well, the best I can tell is this. They're preaching for their own benefit. They're preaching for their own gain. They were, in some regards, envious of Paul because I think he'd, he'd come into town and maybe were taking people away from their own following. They, they viewed Paul as a rival, not as a partner. They were seeking their own reward. Seek, seeking their own kingdom. As a result, I, I'm sure they probably badmouthed Paul. I'm sure they sought people to follow them and not Paul's teaching. Oh, no, it's not not Paul. It's it's here. They still had a kernel of of Christ, though. I'm sure there's a mix of the Corinthian era. You remember those in Corinthians? They're followers of teachers. Some says, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. He said, what, is Christ divided? That's not not the case. Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. In other words, believers in Christ are followers of Christ. We don't need to follow special teachers. We need to follow Jesus. But I think these in Rome were bringing people to themselves for their own ambition. Now, there were others here in Rome who were preaching Christ. To some extent, they were getting the Gospel right. But they were pulling people after their own ways, gaining their own followers. And here in Philippians, Paul says this. He says, hey, know this. Not everyone who's preaching Christ is doing so from good motives. Not everyone who's preaching Christ is good to the core. You need to be aware. If I bring this into modern context, and I need to be careful here a little bit, but I'd say there are are plenty of people like this today. There are plenty of preachers out there today who are preaching Christ, yes, but they're preaching Christ so as to build their own kingdom. They found that you preach Jesus... You get people who follow you and then you can build your own kingdom. So they use Jesus as the path to build their own kingdom. They're preaching Christ to build their own church. 
They're preaching Christ to sell their own books. They're preaching Christ to bring fame to their own name. It's easy to take pot shots at larger churches, but let me say this is alive and well at smaller churches as well. I mean, we can typically think about big campuses, multiple campuses, the name of the preacher and lights for all the world to see, best-selling author, and um, where the ministry of the church becomes glory of the man rather than a, of Christ. Yeah, the gospel's there, but it's a man-centered gospel, certainly. But on a smaller scale, we can think about it as well. I know it firsthand. Think about it. I'm a pastor of a church. I want to see you all grow in Christ for sure. But if nobody follows me, I'm back doing computers again. Which some days isn't so bad. Alright? So, in some ways I'm a businessman. What's my business? See the church flourish. Who are my competitors? Other churches. They might take you away and you can go to other places and we can diminish town. So, from a second whatever... I'm a businessman seeking to get followers here. And I want to work so you don't go to the church down the street. And I know that's the feeling of all pastors, but I'm just here to say this. That my, my heart is that God would use me to direct you to Jesus. There's a reason why we pray here from this pulpit of this church on a consistent basis for other churches in the Rockford area. We pray for other churches in this town so as to tell you it's not about Rock Valley Bible Church. But it's about the glory of Christ. It's not about selfish ambition. It's not about rivalry envy. It's not about, oh, we got a small church and they got a big church or they got a bigger church because they've taken from our church. It's not about that. It's about the glory of Christ. It's the reason why I frequently pass along things in the weekly word that I hear about other churches in town doing and promoting. I, I do that for me in some regards to say, hey, there's something good happening. It'd be good for your souls. Why don't you go over there in the weekly word this past week? Richard Belcher's coming to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. He's written the journey books. I know that some of you have profited from those books, and he's going to preach. Go hear him. Not on Sunday morning, but go hear him on Friday and Friday night and Sunday night. I want your souls fed. Now, from a business perspective, that is like the most stupidest thing in the world to do, right? What contractor goes, you know, he goes and he makes a bid on it and says, well, you know, here's my bid. But, you know, here, here's the name of two or three other contractors in town. You might get them. And they're, you know, they do things actually better than I do. So you might want to go and look at them. Well, how smart is that business? It's not very smart at all, but we're not into business here. We're into promoting the glory of Christ. And, and I would say this. Right? Why is it not the smartest thing? Because if you could become discontent here at the church, where are you going? Well, I know Steve prays for Elam Baptist Church and they pray for a morning star. And I, I know that there's a church. I live out near Freeport. There's a church out there. I live down south. I, where are you going to go? You're going to go to these churches of my friends. You go to a place that believe the same things. Look the places we've promoted. And, and I tell you, it happens. It has happened. I can tell you several instances in the plural of where I have promoted something in another church. People from our church go there and they say, oh, it's pretty good here. Um, they call me up and say, well, thanks, Steve, but you know what? We've gone to that church and we found good food there and we're, we're just going to go there. So thanks. Thanks. Thanks for telling us about it. So bye. They never come here. They always go out. 
Well, wilderness, maybe you're an exception. Okay, you're the one exception that I know. But they always go out. Why? Because I, I just, I'm not about building Rock Valley Bible Church for me. I just say it's not about me. It's about, about Christ. But know that that is a temptation of mine. It's a temptation of us elders, but that's our heart. I think Arnold Delamore shares it best in his biography about Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, During the 1880s, a group of American ministers visited England, prompted especially by a desire to hear some of the celebrated preachers of that land. And on Sunday morning, they attended the, they attended the city temple where Dr. Joseph Parker was the pastor. You guys don't know who Joseph Parker is, but he was a, a great, well-known preacher in London in the 1800s. Some 2,000 people filled the building. And Parker's forceful personality dominated the service. His voice was commanding, his language description, his imagination lively, and his manner animated. The sermon was scriptural, the congregation hung on his words, and the Americans came away saying, what a wonderful preacher is Joseph Parker. Well, in the evening they went to hear Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The building was much larger than the city temple and the congregation was more than twice the size. And Spurgeon's voice was much more expressive and moving and his oratory noticeably superior. But they soon forgot all about the magnificent voice. They even overlooked the, their intention to compare the various features of the two preachers. And when the service was over, they found themselves saying, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. There's a difference there, right? And I want to be a Spurgeon, if you will. I just want to say what a wonderful Savior we have. That's got to be our heart. Now, what do we say about those who are clearly seeking to gather a following for themselves? Who are all about it's all about us rather than just being about Christ? How should we respond? Well, that's my last point here this morning. Paul says that the gospel is advancing in prison and out of prison. And finally, we have reason to rejoice. Here it is, verse 18. Paul says, what then? You've got all these people out seeking and following after themselves, against me, hating me. There's rivalry and all that bad stuff. There are some who's good stuff, but it's all out there. He says, what, how, do you, how do you sort through all that mess? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, which spills over into verse 19. So how are we to respond to such people proclaiming, proclaiming Christ from poor motives to, to follow a gathering after themselves, selfish ambition so they themselves can become wealthy by preaching a Jesus? We're to rejoice. If Christ is proclaimed, we are to rejoice. So when you survey the land and look at other churches and other preachers, you, you ask the question, well, are they preaching Christ? And if the answer comes back yes, then what do we do? We rejoice. Now, here's, here's the balance. It doesn't mean you're obligated to endorse the work. It doesn't mean that you're not even to warn others of the errors of that work. It doesn't mean that you ought to not expose those things, but it does say you ought to rejoice where Christ is proclaimed. It's a hard balance. When you, you look upon a church which is doing something to get a crowd, and you say, you know what, but I know the gospel is going to be I'm going to rejoice in the gospel. When the gospel goes forth and people are saved from their sins, trusting Jesus alone for their salvation, rejoice. And, and you may look at a church and say, yeah, they have a weak gospel there. They preach that just believe in Jesus and you're okay. doesn't matter how you live. doesn't matter how your, whether fruit comes from your life. You just believe in Jesus and you're okay. We need to rejoice in that church, a weak gospel. 
rejoice that the gospel is preached. Other churches may be more legalistic. That believing in Jesus is good. That's everything. But when you come to believe in Jesus, right, be the strong disciple and you need to follow the law and you need to do this. It borders on the Galatian heresy, but, but if it's preaching Jesus and then a bunch of different rules, we can rejoice that Jesus is preached. We think the rules are wrong, but we can rejoice that Jesus is preached. Or, or maybe some other churches are, are preaching a liberal gospel. Right? The believing in Jesus correctly, but some other things in the Bible, they kind of they take out and ignore and say, oh, we can look over that. We can rejoice when the gospel's preached, though we hate those other things. We're not going to commend that work, but we can rejoice in the gospel. Other churches and other preachers, a personality-driven gospel. Right? Believe in Jesus. Follow this man who's got all the answers. Right? Maybe the gospel's preached there. It's sucked along with some other. We can re- rejoice in the gospel being preached. Or other churches being sensational gospel. Whatever it takes to bring people in the door, they'll, they'll do it. Let's bring, let's bring people in, right? Let's, let's make this thing a sensation. But, you know, if the gospel's preached, we must rejoice. Let's beware of their dangers. Let's beware of their pitfalls of those ministries. Let's not, we don't need to commend them. We don't need to bring attention to them. We don't need to encourage people to go to them. We can persuade people from them. But I just say this, as long as the gospel is preached, let us rejoice. And let us rejoice in the power of the gospel. If someone's truly saved, and they're in, let's say, a liberal church, and they start hearing other stuff like, you don't need to take Genesis literally, or they start seeing things like, oh, homosexuality is okay, or women preaching is okay, and they'll start just looking at the Bible and just saying, that doesn't quite match. Let's trust the gospel that God will illumine the hearts of the truly regenerate to know how to respond and how to get out. God will preserve His people. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it till the day of Christ Jesus. And I just say this, the balance is difficult. Rejoicing in works that aren't, aren't quite right. But listen, let's find reasons to rejoice. And let's not think that because we've got it all right at Rock Valley Bible Church that we've got it all right, God. You're surely going to bless us. God, God works through us, okay? And if you think that we've got it all figured out, therefore God is obligated to work through it, that's not how God works. God works despite us every time. He's like the, the, the child who's trying to wash the car with his dad. Dad, can I help wash the car? Sure. And, and the child gets there and he slops all the soap on himself rather than on the car and he gets the hose to spray and he's spraying all over us and he's missing everything. God's washing the car and the car gets washed despite our efforts and know that in a fundamental way we are no different than many other churches who have a, a gospel but are weak in lots of different areas. God works despite us. Now when the gospel is not preached, hear the admonition of Paul, I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another only there's some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to your gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he's accursed. As we said before, so I say again, if any man's preaching your gospel contrary to what you have received, he's accursed. So Paul was real strong on the gospel. But that's where he said, if you're missing the gospel, you're cursed. But if you're truly rejoicing in the gospel, let's rejoice in that. And I think even as Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, 
when Christ is proclaimed. I just think about, I, I told you already, Acts 28. And think about the Jews that heard that went out and told the gospel, even if they didn't believe it. We can rejoice whenever the gospel goes out, whether people believe it or not. I just want to close with one more illustration. Um, Mark Dever tells a story. And I've shared this illustration before a couple of years ago, but what took place in George Whitfield's day when he was followed around by a hound of detractors who called themselves the Hellfire Club. And this group of men derided Whitfield's work and they mocked him. And on one occasion, there was one of them, a man named Thorpe, who he preached a sermon of Whitfield's, mimicking him to his cronies with brilliant accuracy perfectly imitating Whitfield's tone and facial expression. And while he's mocking this man, truth is coming out of his mouth. And he sat down and was so pierced in his heart that he was converted on the spot. God can work in ways far beyond what we think. Even someone who's mocking a great preacher like George Whitfield can be saved in the words coming through his mind as he seeks to mock the very man that he pierced in heart and then comes to believe in his same Savior. So know that God... God can do what He wants to do and let us just rejoice whenever the Gospel progresses. Let's pray. Lord, we we just place this text in Your hands and would pray You would help us with that fine line, God, of understanding the difference between rejoicing and discernment, between rejoicing and approving. Lord, and I would say that, that our tendency by far by far, is to not rejoice where we really have reasons to rejoice. Certainly there's much that passes of Christianity, God, that we know is bad and horrific, but may we rejoice when just the Gospel is preached. God, because You can do Your work through that. But may we fight always for the reform of of churches, for the form of people that they would know and, and love You and come into the fullness of a God-glorifying church body. God, in which You are honored and exalted above all things. So I, I pray, Lord, that You would help us despite our methods, despite promoting other people's works. God, because we want it to be about Christ and Him only. So help us stay along that path that we might be energized and encouraged by the power that He gives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.